fight the stigma that exists toward mental illness, cultivate resilience and self-advocacy, carry the hopes and dreams. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're going to give you highlights from day one of the Zero Mental Health Symposium keynote sessions here in Tulsa in early October. First up, let's hear from Esme Weijin Wang. She's an author and advocate for ambitious people living with limitations. Her essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias, is a New York Times bestseller, and her keynote challenged the audience to expand their view of what recovery and resilience really means. So we'll start with Esme giving a wonderful overview of not only her keynote speech, but really it's an overview of her mission as a mental health advocate because she's dedicated to breaking down the stigma of mental illness any way she can. So we're going to be opening the symposium with some stories and we're going to talk about some big ideas and you're going to hear me tell bad jokes and uh, hopefully open our minds to learning about one another's minds. And so I'm going to talk about three main things. I'm going to talk about stigma, different forms of stigma and how toxic it can be, as well as how embedded it is not only in our culture, Western culture, American culture, but also in other cultures. And then number two, I'm going to talk about the fight against stigma, which I believe we're all engaged in, as well as how that relates to resilience and self-advocacy and how that can fight other difficulties that go with a mental health diagnosis. And finally, I'm going to talk about hopes and dreams and how your jobs are a way to carry other people's hopes and dreams for them when they can't do it themselves and how that's such an important thing to be able to do and such a special uh, job and gift. In this next brief section of Esme's speech, she talks about what life was like before people knew she had a serious mental illness and how she had to hide it from friends and coworkers. I've been living and working in the worlds of mental health and illness for a while now, and I'm often asked, so what is it like to disclose to people that you have this diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder? I gotta say, it, w- it is different now that I have a book out uh, that is uh, all about my life with schizoaffective disorder. Um, but before the information used to come, you know, months or even years into a f- new friendships, and I would often have jobs that would last for years without my coworkers ever learning that I had a psychotic disorder. And that time in my life was really stressful. It was stressful because I didn't know when, if ever, would be the appropriate time to come out about having a serious mental health diagnosis. Okay, I really wanted you to hear this next section of her speech because She focuses on the power of words to change the way ordinary people view mental illness. We live in a society, though, that frequently throws around words like schizo and psycho and crazy. And that's one small thing we can do, right? We can say 
ridiculous instead of crazy, because that's often what we mean when we say that was totally crazy. We can try to catch our verbal habits in order to prevent ourselves from reinforcing the fact that pop culture portrays mental illness as something to fear rather than something that our loved ones might be dealing with or that we might be dealing with. Something that pop culture portrays as something coming from our worst nightmares and certainly not something that we can thrive with. And we can catch when other people do the same thing. It's hard to speak up when other people are doing the talking. But in our communities, we can speak up and say, oh, do you mean that something, that thing is ridiculous or, you know, wild, like not, not crazy? I thank you in advance for doing this. In this next section, we find Esme in 2013 when she had been experiencing a psychotic episode for 10 months and she was about to quit her full-time job. I went to see my psychiatrist and she told me that because I tried every atypical antipsychotic on the market, I had what was known as medication-resistant schizoaffective disorder. She told me that I had um, very low, a very low likelihood of ever reaching 95% or 90% again in my life. And I left her office sobbing, really sobbing and hopeless. There are times in life when we're terrified because the forecast for the future is just really, really bleak. If it were meteorological, it would say natural disaster. I say they are because I think these times in all of our lives are unavoidable as much as we would like to think that they are. These times when we wonder how we're going to get through and how we're going to survive. So I was crying and crying and I left her office and I'm heading toward the elevators and uh, the bodyguard who was uh, the security guard rather, um, the security guard in the psychiatry department stopped me. And I feel like as the security guard for the psychiatry department at a big HMO, seeing a crying woman running to the elevators is not that weird. But he stopped me and he said, are you okay? What happened? And I told him a short version of what had just happened. Well, he said, and he was a very big guy. The doctors don't know everything. Are you a writer? I was really surprised by that because how could he know that I was a writer? And I said, yes. And he said, go home and write about this. Six years later, the collected schizophrenia is debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you. Um, but I couldn't have imagined that on that day. All I could do was keep going 
which is his own kind of resilience. I'm so grateful to my psychiatrist. I am so grateful to my therapist. And I am so grateful to everyone who has helped me to survive, including the security guard who I gave a thank you card to the next time I saw him. And I never saw him again. So finally, I will say this. Number three, one of your biggest jobs when you work with people who have mental health issues is to help them keep going. If at all possible, on top of that, to keep dreaming too. And when they can't do that, to keep dreaming and hoping for them. So I wanted you to hear this next Esme story because, well, it's such a powerful message for mental health professionals. I went to give a couple of talks at the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic in San Francisco a few years ago. And the first talk was fine. It was very easy. It was in front of a bunch of Chinese and Chinese-American people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And they'd been meeting in this group for years and years. And I gave them a talk about stigma. And it went very well. I was very comfortable. I felt like, you know, they were my people so to speak. But the second meeting was in front of clinicians, kind of like this, but much smaller, um, downstairs in a different room. And this room was bright and it was clean. And the clinicians started to wander in, men and women and business casual. And they found their seats and they, they stared. There was one man in the back. He was kind of glaring at me and I really focused in on him. But it was true that everyone made me nervous, not just the guy in the back who was glaring at me, because there was something about being in front of all of those clinicians. It took me back to my first inpatient hospitalization when a group of psychiatrists and social workers and psychologists would make their daily rounds through the ward and check in to see how we were doing. It's been hard for me ever since to shake the anxiety I have in front of clinicians because there's kind of an imbalance of power when you're in an inpatient ward. During my first hospitalization, I learned that clinicians control when inpatients get privileges, like going downstairs for a meal, getting a 10-minute smoke break, etc. And it was my team of clinicians who decided when I would get to go home. You know, so I would get to do the whole, like, I'm fine, I'm okay thing. So when it was time to give a talk to the clinicians at the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic, I was very determined to make sure that they thought that I was a well-functioning member of society. I tried to sound confident. I didn't want to be the crazy person giving a talk, even though I was definitely the crazy person giving a talk. I worried that they were bored. I'm pretty sure that a guy in the back was actually bored. I made sure to mention what schools I'd been to and what jobs I'd had. And when it was over, I was so relieved and I was so glad that I could go home. But this one woman stopped me before I could leave. She thanked me for coming to the clinic and for giving my talk. And she said, you know what? It's hard working with these people. At first, you have so many hopes for them. And then they get sick and relapse. And then they get better. And then they get sick again. And it happens over and over until a lot of the time you lose that hope. Having you come today reminded me that it's in 
important to keep hoping for them. Okay, so we're going to close out our Esme highlights with my favorite portion of her speech, where she explains why she inspires her Twitter followers, I'm definitely one of them, with the most beautiful messages of hope. As I traveled around the country and even went abroad doing events, I learned that as much as people appreciate the new book, weirdly, they also appreciate something else. My good morning tweets on Twitter. By which I mean these little blessing type things that I write on a lot of mornings. But first of all, I need to explain why I'm on Twitter in the first place. I never meant to be on Twitter. It's kind of a cesspool, even more than most social media. The trolls are awful. People are constantly saying mean things. The news is pouring in all the time and overwhelming. It causes a lot of anxiety. But I started my account in 2009, and then I became very ill in 2013. And there were long periods of time when I was unable to leave the house. And so I began to go on Twitter as a way to be social and as a way to connect with people. And so I started making these good morning tweets, which always start and end in the same way. And and so I just wanted to share a few of them, especially since it's morning and um, we could we could use some good morning mojo, I think. Good morning. May we let ourselves soften with the pleasure of something small. May we find a granule of joy, or better yet, may we grow into our best selves and love and be loved. Eyes up. Let's go. Here's another one. Good morning. May we be loved. May our minds thrive. May our hearts not skitter in fear, but beat proudly with courage. May we help others more than we harm. Eyes up. Let's go. Last one. Good morning. May we be safe. May we not hurt others and work for justice, not only in the wider world, but in our smaller circles as well. May we love and be loved. May we be kind. Eyes up. Let's go. And so those are a few examples of these tweets that grew to mean something to people. These good morning tweets that I didn't think too much about, but that people all over the world told me were encouraging in a world that can be really frightening sometimes and desolate, especially when you're struggling with mental illness. And I'm often asked that if I could have one thing to say to a person who has been newly diagnosed with a mental health disorder, what would that be? And I usually say, remember that you are still you. You are still that person who hates peas and their fried rice who has a freckle on their right hand, and who can sing like a bird. Hold on to that. And for those of you who work within systems that often reinforce the strangeness of mental illness, rather than the humanity of those who live with mental illness, remember that too, but also help your clients and patients to remember that about themselves. Because you, as the people around them, their support system, their healing team, have a job to do. Among other things, you are to hold on to their dreams and their hopes. 
Such is your challenge as people who work with and for those who might leave an office crying and hopeless or feel as though the next five minutes are impossible to get through. How wonderful is that? And how wonderful are you to carry that dream until they can carry it themselves? Fight the stigma that exists toward mental illness. Cultivate resilience and self-advocacy. Carry the hopes and dreams. Eyes up. Let's go. Have a wonderful symposium. Thank you. Esme was so amazing at the Zero Symposium, and I'm so glad you could hear a bit of why we love her so much. Next up in our day one highlights from the Zero Symposium is Dr. Stephanie Covington. She is acclaimed for her pioneering work in women's issues. She's co-director of both the Institute for Relational Development and the Center for Gender and Justice in La Jolla, California. Her keynote focused on trauma and justice-involved women. For the most part, you're going to hear pretty much an uninterrupted 15 minutes of Dr. Covington's amazing speech, but I'll be back towards the end to talk about the final section of this speech. Enjoy. Good friend of mine who is a professor emeritus criminologist, for 10, 15 years, she will not call it the criminal justice system anymore. She said it's, it's a wrong name. She calls it the criminal injustice system. And I think it's a better name, actually. It's a much more accurate name. Now, I know Oklahoma has, uh, you, you have a very high incarcerate, the highest for women in the country. We need to know the United States incarcerates more women than any other country in the world. We incarcerate the most. Right? And we've had a huge increase. Not a decrease. It's actually slightly beginning to decrease for men, hasn't decreased for women. The women in the United States represent 5% of the world population of women, but we represent 30% of the incarcerated women. Nobody around the world looks to us as to what to do with justice-involved women. They use us, well, I always believe a teacher, you know, everybody in the world is a teacher for us. People teach us what to do, and they also teach us what not to do. We're teaching the world what not to do and we should feel ashamed. So we have increasing numbers and we have continuing invisibility. And there are always two themes in the lives of women in the justice system, adversity and abuse. And we know that trauma is linked to substance use disorders, mental health problems, sex work, self-harming behavior, and relationship issues. And so we put women with these high rates of abuse into our jails and prisons, which actually are re-traumatizing. Just the standard practices and policies, the think about a woman who's been abused. How about a woman who was held down and raped? Now let's put her in a jail or prison and let's restrain her. What's gonna happen? What about the woman as a child who was locked in a closet? for 24 hours. What happens when we put her in isolation? 
What happens when we search women, pat searches and cavity searches? In 1976, an international agreement was signed by many countries in the world saying you couldn't do what's called a cross-gender pat search, meaning a man could not search a woman. The U.S. never signed that. We changed the rule in California three years ago. Up until that time, a male correctional officer could pat search a female. Need I say more? When we talk about abuse, we also have to talk about gender differences. And we see that if we look over the lifespan. Boys and girls are at risk for harm from the people they know, families and people they know, physical and sexual abuse. But when you get into adolescence, the risk changes. A boy is at risk, a young man is at risk, if he's a gay young man, if he's a young man of color, if he's a gang member, if he's a boy who's transitioning, and his greatest risk comes from people who dislike him, peers and police. For a woman, a young girl, a young woman in her adolescence, her greatest risk of harm comes from the person to whom she's saying, I love you. You move into adult life, if a man serves in the military, his greatest risk for harm comes from the enemy. If he's living in the free world in our communities, his greatest risk for harm being a victim of crime committed by a stranger. For a woman in the United States who serves in the military, her greatest risk for harm comes from the people she's serving with. And if she's living in our communities, her greatest risk for harm comes from her relationships, again, from the person to whom she's saying, I love you. So when we work with men who are trauma survivors, it's very unusual to work with a man who was harmed in his childhood by someone he was in a relationship with in his adolescence and in his adult life but it's a very common scenario for women. And that's why the services we provide when we work with trauma are different for women than they are for men. And of course, our transgender, gay, lesbian, transgender population is the greatest risk for harm. So when we begin to think about trauma, we can go back and actually start with stress. Um, Normal stress. Everybody in this room knows about stress, right? I mean, positive stress comes from getting a promotion, deciding to get married, having a child. Stressful events. You want them. You're looking forward to them, but they're stressful. So that's our positive stress. Tolerable stress is probably what you experience every day. But tolerable stress, you go to work, it's a stressful day, you come home and you hopefully relax. Tolerable stress you can get away from. You can take a vacation from. But then we have destructive stress. Relentless stress are the things that are stressful in people's lives they cannot escape. Poverty, racism, sexism, hunger, child growing up in a family where there's um, drug use, relentless stress, no escape. Think about what percentage of the women in our jails and prisons, do you think grew up in families with relentless stress, in communities of violence? A very high percentage. And what that does is that creates toxic stress for children. And toxic stress actually impacts the development of the brain and the brain architecture. And 
there are three primary times where this is most impactful. In utero, the first five years of life, and in adolescence. And the parts of the brain that are impacted are the part of the brain having to do with emotions and the ability to regulate emotions. The part of the brain that helps you control your behavior and the part of the brain that helps us be in connection with others and relationships and trust. So when we're working with children who've experienced toxic stress, there's actually an impact on the brain. So a lot of what women are struggling with in our jails and prisons, the seeds for those problems, actually were planted in childhood. Actually planted in childhood. Now, the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, has told us a lot about what happens with kids. And I can, I'll do this with the lights. Give me a show of hands. How many of you know about the ACE study? Okay, great, the majority of you. So I'll talk fast on this bit. ACE study, 10 questions, originally done in San Diego where I live. Over 17,000 adults answered the questions according to their life experiences before the age of 18. The first 10 years of the study, nobody paid any attention to it. Zero. The last 10 years has gotten a lot of play. Because in fact, what they have found, what they found initially in this study, that if people had a score of four or more yeses on 10 basic questions, these were the people higher risk to be smoking, alcoholism, the injection of illegal drugs, and obesity. And that study was then replicated in five different states in, in the, here in the U.S. because the population was so skewed in San Diego, predominantly white, college-educated, blah, blah, blah. Now we have over 2,000 studies around the world who've used these 10 ACE questions. So we have an incredible amount of data. Incredible amount. And they've used it every which way to show connections of things. What they found in the original study, well, that 50% of the women were more likely than men to have a score of five or more. So the women had higher ACE scores. What they also found is if they gave one hour, one, if you had a high ACE score, they gave one hour with a mental health professional to the people with high ACE scores. The one hour made a difference. It decreased their use of health care by 38% over the next year. Huge difference. 17,000 people, the staff at Kaiser did not want the program. They said, you can't ask people these questions. Everybody will have an emotional breakdown. We don't have enough mental health service. It's what every social service agency says when you try to introduce trauma work. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're not well trained. We don't have enough staff. So a pager was carried 24 hours a day seven days a week for three years. How many phone calls did they get? Zero. The only people that melted down were the staff. <laughs> Just saying. People had already survived the worst. People said things like, you know, I've never told anybody this. Do you really think that maybe it's affected my life now that I'm adult? One man said, the only person I ever tried to tell was my mother when I was five, and she said, that doesn't happen in our family. One 78-year-old woman said, you know, I thought I'd just take the secret to my grave. People were grateful being asked. 
Now, my original training around trauma was this, that as a psychologist, if I worked with a trauma survivor, I would probably work with them three times a week for three to five years. Guess who was going to get that service, right? I now know we can make a difference in 15 minutes. We all can make a difference. In fact, we all are making a difference. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, and what kind of a difference am I making? We have people in criminal justice settings who are making positive differences, but we also have people in criminal justice system who are making really horrible differences, horrible differences. They took the ACE study into California prisons, found out, of course, the women with the higher ACE scores of the women had, more, had all the same health problems, everything. Greatest risk for what was happening to mental health, they were on more medication, needed more mental health treatment, more attempted suicide. But look at this statistic. If a woman had a score of seven or more yeses on those 10 questions, her risk of having a mental health problem increased by 980%. And yet the mental health services in prisons often do nothing around trauma. They diagnose and medicate. And that, in fact, is how we're training most of our um, uh, master's level clinicians now, to diagnose and medicate, or to do cognitive interventions, which is not what you do with trauma. So let me show you this slide quickly about what happens to people. Okay, you have the process, you have the event. It overwhelms someone's capacity to cope. That's why resilience is so important. You have the initial response to trauma. That's where we hear about fight, flight, freeze. But the person ends up with a sensitized nervous system. There are changes in the brain, the brain chemistry, how the brain operates. And then there's physical or some kind of psychological distress. It can come from a current stressor in life. It could be the experience of being arrested. It could be admitted into a prison. It could be coming into a residential treatment program. It can come from lots of things. It can be a trigger, a reminder of the trauma, which can be a sight, a sound, a smell, a feeling. And when a trauma survivor is triggered, they're pushed back in time and they're flooded by the feelings that were attached to the traumatic event. So you can imagine how disorienting that is if you have a 35-year-old woman who's triggered and all of a sudden she's flooded by the feelings that are connected to something that happened when she was five or six. So what we see is how people emotionally respond. We have retreat responses. These are our mental health responses. Isolation, dissociation, mind-body split, depression, anxiety, mental health, harmful behavior to self, substance use disorders, eating disorders, deliberate self-harm, suicide attempts, harmful behavior to others, aggression, violence, rages, and the physical health issues the lung disease, heart disease, pulmonary disease, autoimmune disorders, the things that the ACE study looked at originally. And what we've done in our communities is we provide services for mental health services, for substance abuse treatment, give people anger management programs, and we have hospitals. And then no one's talking about trauma. So how effective is it going to be if you're not going back up and looking at what might be underneath all this? Right, what, what might be underneath all this? And so if we want to be effective, I think we have to go back. That was pretty awesome, right? So I'm actually going to let Dr. Covington not only close out 
Perizero Mental Health Symposium speech in this next section, but also this podcast, because I just love this quote from Desmond Tutu. Before we go, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week to give you highlights from day two of the Zero Mental Health Symposium. Now here's Dr. Covington. I leave you with one last thought. When Archbishop Desmond Tutu was giving, going to give a mass in South Africa to celebrate his, at that time, 25 years of service, he tried to think about where he wanted to perform the ceremony, and he chose a women's prison. And people said to him, why did you choose to do this in a women's prison? He said, because there's no other place on earth that holds as much pain as a women's prison. Thank you.